A very warm welcome to all our listeners to the first 2023 episode of Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. I'm Sandy Ruxton and I'm here with my co-host Stephen Burrell. Hi Stephen. Hi Sandy and hi everyone. Uh, so today we're really delighted to be talking to Professor Lucy Delap. So she's a professor of history at Cambridge University um, and her research has principally been focused on the history of feminism. And in 2020, she published a really great book on this topic called Feminisms, A Global History. She's also worked extensively in labor history uh, with a focus on the intersections of gender, class and disability. So I met Lucy originally in about 1996 when she was working at the progressive think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research, and I was co-authoring a an IPPR paper on fatherhood. So I, I was really glad to discover that since then, Lucy's maintained a strong interest uh, in researching men's relationship to feminism amongst other issues. So, so hi, Lucy. We'd obviously like to talk to you more about some of the specific work you've done on men and masculinities. But before we do so, we, we wanted to ask you, as the first historian who's been on the podcast, about the place of history in these discussions. So what is it that a historical perspective brings, particularly in relation to our understanding of feminisms, gender, work on men and masculinities? What, what does it bring to the table? Thanks for the question there, Sandy, and thanks for the invitation to, to be on the podcast. I'm, I'm honored to be the first historian. Uh, I kind of feel like now and men always had a like a historical potential uh, 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 as a title. So what can history bring? Um, history brings us this very exciting prospect that things can change. And by looking back historically, we get a sense of just how um, fluid and mutable ideas about masculinity can be. So it's super exciting not only to see just how very different um, men and boys have presented in the past, uh, but also to see examples of kind of resistance to patriarchal modes and men who've been actively uh, organizing against patriarchy. If we look at something like the uh, men's involvement in the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century, there was a uh, both a British-based and a uh, international movement of men who were, you know, seeking to, to to support women's claims for suffrage, and I think that's really inspirational. So history brings us a sense of change, a sense of otherness, a sense of contingency, and um, uh, yeah, it's great to, to to have history here as part of your conversations. Uh, presumably, also it shines a light on the importance of. Uh, issues such as sexuality, emotions, subjectivity, um, the private sphere, you know, I and mean, it's done that in relation to women, but also that that is relevant to men's lives, of course, too. Absolutely. So, I mean, to take a, a, a nice example of this, um, my colleague Helen Smith wrote a book, interestingly, um, a couple of years ago now, uh, which was about the north of England and the way in which men had relationships with other men, sometimes sexual relationships or sometimes relationships of intimacy that were not stigmatized, that were essentially accepted within a, a normative landscape of being a good man, which was equated with being a good worker, being a good provider, being a good mate. And so she tells this story of uh, an environment where we might imagine there was working class homophobia or stigma or forms of real oppression for men who had sex with men. But her story is completely different. It's a story of, you know, just just mm. community acceptance and workplace acceptance of those relationships in a period where what it was to be a homosexual just wasn't 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 known, wasn't recognized. There wasn't really an identity that went with those those sexual practices. That's a brilliant example of just a like a completely different landscape, a very unexpected uh, story that runs counter to lots of sort of cliched representations of the past being a place where you know men were in the closet, where where gay men or, or men who had sex with men were, were really unable to express themselves. Mm, that's also interesting. I mean, we'll ask you a bit more about your work in a minute, but uh, one of the things we want, we usually start our conversations with is to ask uh, our guests a little bit about um, their own histories and how they've become interested in thinking and working on gender equality issues in the first place. So, so could I ask you how and why you got involved in this area and in, in researching gender and feminist history in particular? Yeah, I, I've, I've long been very interested in um, feminism and, and understanding that as a historical question. I guess when I was at university, I was benefiting from 
about a decade of efforts made to, to bring feminist perspectives into the academy and entrench them in women's studies courses, in sociology courses, in, in um, history. I, I, I actually studied philosophy and, and, and political thought. And I was fascinated and thrilled to find texts by people like uh, Juliet Mitchell, um, I actually worked with Juliet Mitchell in, in Cambridge as a graduate student. We were reading Carol Gilligan, a moral philosopher. These people were there textually. They were also sometimes there uh, in person. The, it felt like the debates in the academy around gender and sexuality and feminism were just so vivid and so exciting. We were reading Judith Butler. Her work was just kind of exploding onto the scene uh, especially gender trouble, suggesting these really exciting, intellectually uh, challenging ways of thinking about gender. So, in a way, I'm, uh, you know, that was what 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 happened to me in 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 university, and I then took those interests on into uh, the policy world, where Sandy and I had a, a an interaction many years ago now um, in thinking about fatherhood, and then on again into into kind of graduate work. And I started working on the history of um, feminism. I had a kind of crazy idea of wanting to do everything, really, the whole history of feminism as I saw it. But I got I got stuck in 1911, uh, and um, I was reading the first ever magazine published in Britain that called itself a feminist magazine. And that magazine was so unlike anything I was expecting. I was expecting something very kind of worthy and, and suffrage oriented. And actually I was reading this in, in incredibly vivid and in intellectually sparky um, publication, a bit like say Judith Butler's work, but hundred years previous, which it didn't in fact support women's suffrage. It said if women vote, they'll just be kind of enrolled into the existing political system. Nothing will change. It's just status quoism. Let's like really change the world. Let's, let's, ditch capitalism let's completely change the way we raise children um let's let's talk about sexuality in very exciting new ways so yeah it was a very it was a very profound experience for me of going what is this this is not what i was expecting and really my my all my writing has has um gone on from there in relation to to masculinities um and uh the experiences of men and boys well that was also very profoundly present in, in that Edwardian period where people started to talk about feminism. I mean, the word was literally being coined and being popularized as a means of moving away from talking about the women's movement because they wanted a term that would invite men into the conversation. And they thought it was you know, not credible that any change would happen for women if men weren't part of that change. That was such an interesting idea. Again, I thought very fresh, very surprising for me to see at that relatively early date an openness to, to men being part of the conversation about feminists or, or being able to call themselves feminists. So I was reading the work of people like Randolph Bourne, uh, an American progressive era writer, you know, Floyd Dell, all feeling that feminism was their struggle. In fact, Feminism wasn't just one struggle amongst many. For them, it was the preeminent struggle. And that was pretty mind-blowing for me. So I suppose my alertness and, and interest in how men might engage in feminism came from that sort of early 20th century history and then has sort of spread into the rest of the, 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 the 20th century and, and indeed the 21st century. That's so interesting. Yeah, and, and you've done so much great research on on these issues, as you're saying, really. Um, I mean, as you as you mentioned before, I suppose your your work really highlights that there's you know actually a long history of of men, you know, perhaps in small numbers, but nonetheless, uh, some men kind of engaging with and supporting movements for women's rights here in the UK and and across the globe. Um, so, for example, you've done this great research uh, on the kind of men's movement, as it might be called, and their relationship with feminism in the UK from the 1970s and 80s onwards, uh, based on interviews. Um, with pro-feminist men for the British Library Archive um, called Unbecoming Men. And I think that's still available, isn't it, on the website? So I can really recommend people check that out. That was actually, just as a side note, one of the, my first encounterings with 
pro-feminist men was the work you've done on the British Library website. Actually. So it was quite inspiring seeing, you know, other men who had, you know, actually for a long time been involved in this, this work. Um, so that was quite nice. But, um, but yeah, and so but in your work, you've described this relationship uh, of these men with feminism as perhaps being one of kind of uneasy solidarity. Um, so could you perhaps explain that a bit more, like what you mean by that? Yeah, well, Stephen, that's great to hear that you, you, <laughs> you've used the interviews and, 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 and they're inspiring for Absolutely. you. That is absolutely yeah. what I wanted to to do with that project because I felt that, you know, I had been working on the history of, of feminisms for, I don't know, 10 years, and I'd never heard of any involvement of men in in the in that so-called sort of second wave or post-68 period. I remember asking colleagues, like, what 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 could be out there around men? And people saying, oh, I don't think you'll find anything. I don't think there is anything. <laughs> And then when I went and started probing and started both looking in archives, but also talking to men, I was just stunned at how much engagement there was, how the men's movement, I mean, you say small numbers, yes, comparative to the population, it's small, but, you know, it's still stunningly well organized in, into, you know, men's groups in every single town and, and city in the UK and very strong clusters of activism as well, looking internationally in, in France, Denmark, Scandinavia. Australia, the United States, uh, all over the world. So there was a lot more there than I was expecting. I actually interviewed men. I sort of I did about about forty interviews about ten years ago now um, with men who had been involved in one way or another, whether organised men's groups or or through their professional lives or, or whatever it might have been. And I interviewed them partly because I didn't think there was an archive. I was completely wrong about that. And when I started looking in archives with, you know, a more kind of directive attention, um, it turned out that there was a ton of periodicals, of conference reports, of novels, of diaries, of letters, of, of all, all the things that a historian would, would normally work with, which spoke to tens of thousands of men making commitments to changing their lives, having been involved with feminist circles, loving or knowing feminist women you know they, they they really felt as though the women's liberation movement was for them and to try and explore well what did that mean was just a lot of fun as a project and I was partly inspired by Lynn Siegel's um, great book called Slow Motion and I suppose that you know you could say that title Slow Motion sort of sums up her take on the men's movement, right? There was some change, but it was pretty glacial. Uh, and what does it kind of all amount to? I think she was a little skeptical as to what it all amounted to. But it seemed to me that with a kind of 40 or 50 year um, pause, it was a good moment to look back and say, well, okay, so what did this uh, give us? What, what, what kind of um, results were there from these many thousands of men pledging change? And I do think that we can see um, areas of quite profound change. I, I mean, I, I'm sort of with Lynn Siegel in saying, yes, it's slow motion. I, we would all like for uh, change to, 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 to happen faster in relation to, let's say, uh, men's ability to step up to domestic labor, men's ability to get involved with the lives of children and take responsibility for children. Um, we would like to see men moving out of the limelight in terms of their dominant voices in um, in the media. But I think some of those things have, have started to change. And I, I wouldn't put it all at the door of the anti-sexist men's movement, but I really do think it was the, the most high-profile attempt to really push progressive masculinities onto the agenda and to really insist on um, on their presence. And, you know, I, I've looked at that quite closely in relation to men's involvement in, in childcare and in men's relationship to kind of emotional cultures, em emotional um, literacy, if you like. Um, and both those areas are ones where I think there has been a genuine shift in the last 50 years. Mm. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Because it feels like some of the things you're describing, we, we just don't see anymore, really, do we? Like, we don't see large groups of men organizing in the ways you're describing. Um, I mean, why do you think that is? Why do you think that things have shifted? Because it doesn't necessarily mean there's fewer men in support of gender equality or of feminism. But, but do you have any thoughts on why there has been a bit of a shift, perhaps, in how these things are, are done or organized? Well, there was a lot that was making possible a kind of alternative or countercultural politics uh, in the 1970s. The men that I was looking at were often men who were part of that 
it, that expanded group of young people who were going to university in the um, 60s, 70s, 80s. Those were, you know, decades where um, higher education was having a much larger effect on people's conversations, public conversations, if you like. Um, but they were also often men who were living quite alternative lifestyles. They were they didn't feel like they had to kind of jump into the labor market and secure their job and start repaying their student debt and uh, grow up quickly. They had a kind of pause in their 20s where, you know, they, they maybe weren't working. Sometimes that was because they couldn't find a job. They were unemployed or they just didn't prioritize careers. Some of them were living in squats. Uh, lots of them were part of other movements so they were you know they were used to the idea of going to meetings and going to marches and picketing places and and, and you know those those repertoires of political action kind mm. of just got translated over into an anti-sexist movement that started picketing sex mm. shops or um, picketing cinemas that were screening films that, that they thought were objectionable or showed violence towards women they were trying to be accountable to a very very active vibrant women's movement that was embedded in consciousness raising groups, women's centers, radical bookshops, you know, that infrastructure was there. And mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that that led to a sort of spiral, I suppose, of, of um, like willingness to step up and knowledge of like meaningful ways in which you could step up. The trade union movement was much stronger and was, mm -hmm. you know, supplying the opportunities for marching for for meeting for for caucuses for all sorts of political activity and a lot of that is gone now so i think the change in some ways is there in men's intimate lives i think men are keener fathers certainly 80s and 90s saw men you know wanting to be present at the birth of their children for example and sometimes that would also deliver in terms of closer intimate involvement with the lives of of, of babies and toddlers that one, you know, I'd say there's kind of still further work to be done, but um, uh, we're, we're starting to see some quite progressive things around men being more willing to take paternity leave or time out from 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 their job uh, to, to get to know their, their children better if they if they have children. So um, we have the kind of intimate change, but sadly, I feel like there's been a sort of bottoming out of the infrastructure of politics such that in the 21st century, we've got this landscape, which sometimes people call it clicktivism, right? There's a more passive mm. sort of, I'm going to read a few blog posts. I might even write a blog post, might make a podcast, um, might retweet <laughs> a few things. Um, there's there's not quite the same depth of commitment. Mm. And it's almost as though people don't quite know how to meaningfully make that mm. commitment to being a feminist other than maybe you buy a t-shirt mm. <laughs> no that's a, such a great point yeah really interesting something for us to reflect on perhaps <laughs> um but but anyway uh, on a previous episode as well uh, of the podcast um i mean something else which i suppose your your work highlights but but we were speaking to professor bob pease in australia um so he's you know a well-known influential social work academic and activist in this space he's been involved in anti-sexist men's groups in australia from the 1970s onwards and he described how in australia the groups kind of seem to splinter off into different directions with some remaining you know avowedly with a kind of pro-feminist ethos, others going off more in the direction of therapy or exploring kind of gay or queer identities, and some perhaps attempting to rediscover the kind of wild man within this kind of more mythopoetic movement. Um, so would you say these these divergences, these same divergences were visible in the UK and, and elsewhere as well? And um, and if so, like how, how do you make sense of these kinds of um, these shifts, I guess, within uh, this kind of men's movement, as it were? Yeah, very similar kinds of splits happened in the UK. And um, part of me thinks that's fine because we, we don't need to have a static politics where, you know, you, you go into politics with one set of goals and they necessarily have to stay the same. So I'm all for mm. sort of development and, and evolution and, and different things making sense at different stages of your life course. You know, if you're a man in, in, in your 20s living in a squat, you're going to be interested in different things from if you're, a, let's say, a man who's, who's experiencing ill health in his 60s might have a very different set of questions to ask about what it what is it to be a man different kinds of embodiment different kinds of um political sort of ur urgencies if you like i do think that one of the big things that changed was quite like historically specific not just in the uk but but elsewhere which was the rise of a very 
malign politics around um, divorce and child custody and this very powerful idea that started to fuel um, a rather different kinds of me- kind of men's movement, if you like. We could call it the men's rights movement, which was that men were being discriminated against, that they were being cut out from their children's lives, that um, that feminists had deprived them of like key sources of of um, of well being and and things that mattered to men, and. So that, I think, took some of the energy out of the men's movement. It sort of problematized then why men might want to meet in men-only spaces. So in the early 70s, men were saying, okay, we need to meet in men-only spaces because we need to learn how to take responsibility for our own emotional well-being. We need to learn to, to trust other men enough to share our intimate worlds with each other. We need to learn how to touch other men. We've got to get over our homophobia if, for, for straight men. You know, there were quite compelling reasons, quite progressive reasons why like a, a man-only space was was relevant. Uh, the, you know, a lot of women were like, please, we don't want you in our women's group and um, just like step up and, and do your own thing. They, women didn't want to have to always be dealing with men. So um, that kind of changes, I think, because the, the a lot of the men's, men-only groups start to become places where men are going to complain about how women have deprived them of of access to their children. But I also think that there was a a complete unwillingness on the part of those men's rights groups to accept that men weren't getting custody of their children because they were violent towards their partners or their children. That's the, the most common reason why men were losing custody. Men didn't want to pay child support. Now, that was wrong. They just had to understand that, you know, women were deeply impoverished when they were looking after children and that, you know, men were not paying um, what what they should have done. So there was a kind of, um, you know, a very awkward negotiation of that, of that landscape. There was a pro-feminist rationale for saying men should be fathers. They should step up. They should take childcare and the courts need to re- recognize that. But there were also some very malign and, and, and like toxic arguments being made that were blaming women and feminists for the breakdown of relationships, the um, uh, question of what happened to children afterwards. And so that just became like a quagmire for men's movements, particularly kind of what poured petrol on the flames in in the UK context was the Child Support Act in 1991 and the um, very high profile um, like political nightmare that that resulted from that of men feeling that they were being persecuted by the state, and that all of that gave men's gripes, if you like, a very high profile in a way that did not work towards kind of feminist goals. Um, and interesting for us to be thinking about that today, when we see a similar high profile, turbocharged sense of of grievance and anger on the part of some misogynist men, whether it's incels, whether it's Andrew Tate, whether it's um, just kind of routine forms of laddish laddish behavior, you know, that is clearly still present in our culture. I don't think it's new, but it's still there. So it, in some ways, I would say that the kind of headwinds of the, of the, the, the later 80s and 90s, we're seeing something similar to that today with a very plausible, credible, um, algorithmically driven misogynist manosphere um, that, you know, we, 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 we can't ignore. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier the connections between masculinity and emotion, and clearly that's central to all the things you've just been describing. You, you've talked a bit about um, what might be called consciousness-raising groups, about childcare also, but I think you've reflected too on, on the complex issues around uh, what has been called the male gaze, and surrounding feelings of guilt and shame and so on. I wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about that as well. And also, I mean, I think there's an issue underneath that as to whether it's possible for individuals, for movements to, in inverted commas, re-script emotions in the pursuit of gender equality. Is, is that a realistic goal? Yeah, thanks for that question, Sandy. Um, <laughs> I think... I've written quite a lot about sort of guilt and shame uh, and the male gaze because I do think there's a lot of like signs in the archive that men did find it very difficult to 
to think about what it was to be a progressive man without feeling a degree of guilt uh, or shame around how men have treated women. That's sometimes their own individual past. Men were sometimes reflecting on relationships that broke down or episodes of, of, of violence or, um, you know, sort of uh, sexual incompatibility, shall we say, um, that, you know, where, where things hadn't gone well for them and they didn't feel that their behavior looked good when they thought about it with, with kind of fem feminist influences or feminist spectacles on. So that's not a great basis on which to create a movement. And you could say that the leaning towards sort of mythopoetic or sort of more backslapping versions of the men's movement were motivated by the fact that it was really hard to stay in that position of guilt and shame, which, you know, was a very awkward transitional phase, you could say, for men. But for, for some men, at least, I think it was very productive, right, that they had this period of difficult emotions, of allowing themselves to look back over their lives or look at society in general and, and, and to think about, you know, what is it to have male privilege, to really think about what, what, what their privilege had done for them. And so some of them found it workable and moved from a position of guilt to a position of um, wanting to um, make amends to make reparations to women, whether that was on an individual basis, you know, with their partners or their children, uh, or whether it was on a kind of more societal basis. It's not dissimilar to the really interesting discussions that have been happening around uh, white supremacy in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter, that white people are asking themselves these really hard questions about, well, what is it to be a white person? And uh, you know, if I if I accept on some abstract level that there is such a thing called white supremacy, well, am I its ben beneficiary? So those difficult questions about uh, privilege, you know, th th they're they're difficult, mm -hmm. and some men ask themselves to do quite difficult things, to, you know, to feel differently about themselves, to um, to elicit new feelings because they recognise that. Um, you know, that they were uh, emotionally crippled, if you like, but that they were also crippling other people or harming other people through their, their emotional inadequacies. Um, I don't think it's possible to, you know, just ask yourself to feel differently. And that was a very difficult um, prospect within men's groups. I don't think that the mostly kind of quite grassrootsy um, therapy experiments that that there's evidence of in the 70s 80s 90s a lot of them weren't workable you know that people would try out different kinds of like co-counseling or primal therapy or use rawsack or you know all these kind of like therapeutic aids if you like to try to work out how to be different and feel different and yeah i, I think it was um it was done in ways that were were, were quite unworkable so i guess if we wanted to be more positive and say, well, where did it work well? We might say that it was practical measures like, say, running a crash. A lot of anti-sexist men were running crashes for feminist events, whether that was peace camps or conferences or women's centers. It was really, really powerful to have men there looking after children in the background, right? Not standing up on the platform making their voices heard, but just staying in the background and making the crash. And sometimes through ac actions like running a crash or putting together a periodical, men found ways of being together that were really exciting, that, that gave them intimacies, that gave them sort of, you know, ease with other men that, you know, kind of brought the tangible results of new ways of being a man in society that they were looking for. So, in the process of politics, they sometimes found that th those results. But in but where people actually sat themselves down and said, "I have to be a different man <laughs> because I'm guilty of some awful crimes against women," um, that's 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 a very hard basis on which to then build a positive movement. Yeah, I was struck by by a phrase I found in one of your articles where you said, and I'm quoting now, 
anti-sexist men's organising was often premised on a denial or a refusal of a positive identity and the embrace of a negative claim about what they were against. So, in a sense, it, it was easier for them to say what they what they weren't for rather than what they were for. Um, is that that's that's part of this, isn't it? That's right. And the, the kind of uh, the change over time story here is that a lot of the like later attempts to uh, organise as anti-sexist men started to try to really push forward these more positive ways of being a man, and and, and some of them were sort of slightly absurd. Uh, chest beating ritualistic sort of uh, to my eye appropriative um ways of 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 saying let's get into the woods and let's be real men together i think that was a, a cul-de-sac i have to say of of the men's movement um but you know thinking about like how positive stories needed to sit there alongside critique wasn't unreasonable and um you know I, sometimes men's groups survived to this day some it was very moving sometimes to interview men in sort of around 2012 2013 when i was doing these interviews and discover that they were still in those men's groups uh and they were still meeting regularly and they were doing things like like regularly hiking together or um cooking and sharing food together i think food is such an interesting um site for men to sort of re rework their sense of self and their sense of community so you know some men just hit on a, a a really great way of just creating circles of intimacy like i suppose the question was did those intimate circles those meals shared those singing workshops whatever it was that they were doing did they continue to keep that connection with the critical politics of feminism i guess it ebbed and flowed and it partly ebbs and flows as feminism itself ebbs and flows and different kinds of um, concerns come to the fore. So if the women's movement is very, very focused um, on, say, male violence against women, I think that's a very critical and hard-hitting agenda. And it does force um, men's groups to um, ask themselves hard questions, to, to ask, like, how am I going to change things tangibly so that men are less violent and women are less persecuted by men. But if the women's movement is interested in other questions, I think sometimes it was much less obvious for men how they could get involved and, and what mm -hmm. feminism meant for them. You could say during the 1990s when there was a you know, very, very strong debate within the women's movement about sort of what was sometimes called sex negative and sex positive um, approaches, it was less clear like what, what men were going to do with that. So, so the level of accountability and connection with women's movements and, and, and feminist organizing has really varied over time. You could say right now, in 2023, it's kind of an exciting time where um, intersectional feminist approaches that think about people who are you know, racialized and people who are living with all kinds of disadvantage, the, the, gaze, the, 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 the focus of debate is very focused on violence particularly since well a series of a series of murders um around the world um and and horrific attacks on women I, I i feel as though we're at this point where there's actually a great deal of potential for men to say okay where do i stand on this these these are often acts that are undertaken by men against women what 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 should i do yeah, I mean, one thing which your work highlights as well um, in relation to a lot of the things you've just been talking about, um, it, it, I suppose, are these questions about male sexuality and how to think about that if you're developing a consciousness of a patriarchal society that we live in um, and how that might shape your kind of practices and stuff. Um, so, I mean, earlier this, well, uh, it was now 2022, wasn't it, that you published this great article uh, called Rethinking Rapes, Men's Sex Lives and Feminist Critiques. And so in it, you discuss how uh, men involved in anti-sexist activism found it hard to deal with the kind of development of feminist thinking and activism around some of the things you were talking about in terms of rape and sexual violence in the 1980s and 90s, and to therefore kind of reflect on um, what that meant for them and to try to reconfigure their own kind of personal sex lives mm. in relation to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about, about that research and what you found and, and some of the insights you, you gained from that? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Um, I I spent quite a lot of time thinking about rape and what 
work that concept was doing. And in a way, I was looking at debates amongst um, feminists in the 1970s who were ex conceptually expanding the idea of rape away from um, a certain kind of sexual assault, criminal assault, um, generally associated with some kind of penetrative sexual um, assault, to rape being a much bigger category, sometimes summed up with the idea of like little rapes. And little rapes were wolf whistles or bum pinches or kind of derogatory language, which uh, um, started to be placed on a spectrum so that, you know, m small infractions, if you like, uh, or small acts of violence against women were being conceptually equated with much greater, more serious, more, more heavily criminalized uh, actions. And I suppose it's a bit like today in debates about sexual violence, people often talk about rape culture. Rape culture meaning exactly the kind of things that we've seen blown up around, around figures like Andrew Tate and um, his incitement to uh, all sorts of forms of violence against women. And I felt that for men who were organizing along anti-sexist lines and who were thinking hard about their sex lives, that those kind of like larger questions about rape culture or little rapes started to make it really difficult for men who, st straight men who wanted to have sexual relationships with women really weren't sure how to, how they should, how they should proceed, whether any kind of, you know, um, uh, interaction they had with women was capable of being seen as a, as a little rape. Now, I had some sympathy for men who were really struggling for um, a sort of script to follow or a kind of acceptable way of being as a, as a heterosexual man. Um, but I was also really struck by the actual very ubiquitous presence of sexual violence amongst even these, you know, these principled, mostly well-educated, politically active anti-sexist men who reported their own experiences of, of, you know, quite worrying, troubling, um, violent fantasies or actual acts of violence against women um, that, that, that made me think that we, we needed to probe a bit at their claims to be anti-sexist. I actually think this was true with almost all of the areas where I was interviewing men who were you know, proudly telling me about having read feminist books and, you know, their, their praxis in relation to um, uh, their lives. Mm. I learned to be a little bit skeptical about those things, partly because I, 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 I met the stepdaughter of one of the men I, I had interviewed who had stressed to me that his kind of big contribution, his his anti anti-sexist kind of contribution was childcare and his stepdaughter said yeah he did childcare where it showed <laughs> so the child herself had spotted that he wasn't really quite all that he was um uh, crediting himself to be so so yeah in relation in, in relation to rape I, w I wanted to show how um how, how difficult it was to think about what a kind of um more adequate, less abusive uh, script might be for, for um, heterosexual men, but also to point to the like the, the surprising um, presence of forms of um, of violence and assault and abuse and manipulation and coercive control and so on, even in this very politically aware uh, group of men. Mm. Yeah, and I remember there's something quite powerful, um, which I think it might have been in, in your other article, actually, when Sandy mentioned about the male gaze and kind of John Berger's work on that and what some of the men, how they were tr making sense of that. And like some of them were actually finding it hard even to, to know how to look at women and, you know, not be able to look at them in the eyes and things like that. And there is, you know, I mean, there is something quite powerful there, isn't there? That like, yeah. how do we like figure these things out when you start to gain this understanding of, of how much we've all been kind of socialized to to see the world and see other people, to see women in these particular ways. Um, it's pretty hard stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it was. And, you know, I was interviewing them some sort of 40, 50 years after lots of them had been in 
uh, men's groups, um, had been at Greenham Common supporting women, had, you know, had been at Ruskin College, at the 1970 Women's Liberation, first Women's Liberation Conference. And they still found it hard to look at me sometimes. You know, they would comment sometimes yeah. mid-interview, God, I don't know where to look. I don't know where to look. <laughs> One man that I interviewed spent the entire interview looking sort of about, you know, two foot above my head because yeah. he couldn't look at me for the whole time. <laughs> so, you know, this is this. these are like very deep um, mm -hmm. psychologically um, central questions of like, how do I, how do I exist in this world as a, as a man? And I, I don't underestimate how, how difficult that is. And I, 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 you know, part of my interest for this project is being a, a mother of two young men myself, two boys, yeah. um, and seeing them sort of move through different life stages and experiment with different ways of being. And, and you know, my, I do have like a great deal of compassion for young men who often find it very difficult to know how to be in, in, in social worlds that are not always very easily navigable. Mm. Right, but, but and it feels as well, I suppose, to try and emphasize the positive as well that like it did seem like despite these struggles for a lot of the men you've spoken to, feminism did have a huge positive impact on them. And and I mean, did you encounter kind of those positive examples in relation to sexuality as well? That like they were some of the men were finding more healthy ways of having relationships with all sorts of different people. And I did, <laughs> I did absolutely. I don't, I don't want to imply that you know they all just lost the will to live. Um, uh, yeah, there were there were the fact that I had access to some of these stories about violence was part of that process of people rethinking mm. their sexual experiences. Mm. They were willing to tell me some quite disturbing things, partly because they had, you know, worked on and, and tried to process difficult feelings that they had. Um, I, I really admired them for being able to share stories around violence or assault that you know that they had come to see in different in different lights um and yeah i think one of the biggest shifts between the period of the kind of start if you like of the anti-sexist men's movement in 68 1970 and today is that there's a, a much more kind of readily available queer world where men feel that they you know have a wider repertoire of ways of of being, of existing, both socially and sexually, and it's 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 evident in the men that I interviewed that you know lots of them, you know, always had uh, kind of forms of of heterodox sexual desire. Some of them were celibate for a time. Some of them were bisexual. Some of them came to identify as 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 gay men. That, and that wasn't necessarily easy in the 70s when certainly to be bisexual was seen as like, you know, trying to have your cake and eat it and wasn't always welcomed within radical politics. Um, but, you know, in, in, in those decades, it, as time shifted across those decades, it, it became easier for men to say, yes, I've got these different ways of, of wanting to find intimacy. Or, or, or sometimes, you know, celibacy was a very powerful mode of critique of contemporary masculinities and and was really productive for them and and I should add for some women as well um there's there's very interesting evidence of of women opting for for celibacy as well so yeah there's a kind of like very rich landscape there of mm. of sexual change and alongside like change in childcare and change in emotions i think change in sexual expressiveness is one of the like mm. the positive stories that we can tell from this like contemporary history. Mm. Talking about rich landscapes, um, we mentioned at the start you've written this great book um, published by Penguin in 2020 called "Feminisms: A, a Global History," and um, we wondered uh, what some of the things are that you learned from studying the global history of feminism, uh, with emphasis on perhaps on the global part. And what could you what can you teach us? What can that teach us about the struggles feminists are engaged in today? You know, what, why is a global perspective so important? I really enjoyed writing that book. I learned a ton uh, through kind of a, a, a deep dive into a load of literatures on sites that I didn't know very well. I felt very strongly that there's a kind of older historical narrative, if you like, which is about the, the dissemination of ideas that have their origin in Europe or in some versions of it in sort of Euro-America 
transatlantically um, generated, which which then gets sort of disseminated around to the rest of the world, and the rest of the world sort of you know takes on board these these Euro-American feminist ideas, and that seemed clearly wrong to me because we find um, all sorts of like alternative originating points, if you like, or um, points of feminist um, contention, which are much more widely distributed than that older literature suggests. So in a nutshell, the book is, is, is looking to the global south, looking to formerly, formerly um, colonialized areas, um, looking to indigenous cultures and finding new entry points for thinking about what, what feminism means. Sometimes that came out of the encounter between colonial uh, occupiers and um, indigenous peoples. Sometimes it came from forms of global movement or interaction that was nothing to do with the kind of European empires. Sometimes we get points of, of, of um, simultaneity where it feels as though a kind of key idea is just popping up everywhere. And I don't think we can say, oh, it starts here and ends there. Um, we just need to acknowledge that it's being discussed globally. And I think what we get from that is um, like a much stronger sense of like rich creative um, contributions to ideas about contesting gender inequality, if you like. Sometimes under the the name feminism, sometimes not. Sometimes actually really opposed to ideas of what feminism represented because feminism was seen as a a European import or, you know, a, a kind of bourgeois or a white dominated set of ideas. I found it quite helpful the way you used the sort of metaphor of a mosaic to describe all the different strands that you've just mentioned. I, I wonder how that came to you and, and what you think that added. Historians are always really keen to come up with uh, with metaphors and there's been some wonderful <laughs> metaphors in feminist history uh, of like <laughs> volcanic lava, of waves, ocean waves, of radio waves, of uh, hair waves, um, <laughs> permanent waves. Um, so so we're quite playful with our, our kind of uh, metaphorical writing. And the mosaic, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to, to write about mosaics um, partly because, like, where do mosaics start and finish? They're, they're in, in their very nature, they're a kind of repetitive pattern that we find it hard to say, like, here's the start and here's the end. What I like about mosaics is the idea that, you know, there's multiple pieces and they all add up to a whole that maybe you only get if you stand right back. And then if you move a couple of steps forward, you kind of see a different pattern. So it, it's helpful for us to think about different kind of different sense our different sense of scale and how it might look very different if we go down into a micro history and look really close at one person's life but if we step back and maybe look at a whole region or look at a whole epoch or a whole empire we, we might get a different kind of picture so it's a very like heterogeneous metaphor mm. and I also love the idea that metaphors uh, so, sorry mosaics are made out of like little bits and pieces that you find here and there and I do actually think that that's how feminist intellectual and creative contributions have, have come into being through people sort of plucking out bits and bobs and then recombining them and saying, look, here's a, here's a new thing. That, that, that seems to me very suggestive of uh, the, the contributions that, that, you know, that come to make up feminism. They're sort of a bit magpie-like. And sometimes some of the pieces are missing. Historians are very familiar with the idea that we never get the full picture we just get little bits and bobs. Mm. So, so I, you know, imagine that you're, you're you're an archaeologist and you're uncovering the mosaic, and you only have like a third of the pieces, and you have to sort of slightly guess what was in there. That's what it's like to write history, mm. and particularly, it's what it's like to write history of much less well documented parts of the world, where you know we just get like little glimpses of you know what maybe women thought who lived in Zimbabwe about you know, their, their gendered experiences of colonialism. We don't have much to go on, but we get these little glimpses. So we, we, we have to learn how to read those 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 individual pieces. Oh, thanks for the explanation. I found it a truly uh, useful metaphor in, in thinking about history and its place. Mm. So, so thank you for that. But um, talking about uh, pieces of a mosaic, uh, we asked you before whether you'd be interested in reading a short extract from the book. And uh, I think that'd be a great way to end. So, so perhaps you could 
introduce it or, or just sure. say what you have to say in relation yeah. to this? <laughs> Thank you, Sandy. Um, so I wanted to talk about Fumilaya Ransom Kuti. She is one of the most prominent figures in Nigerian history. She is a very well-recognized figure, but, you know, I think she could be better known outside of like a particular strand of, of, of Nigerian history. She was a pan-Africanist, a nationalist. Uh, she was a democratic socialist. Um, she was very high up um, in the Women's International Democratic Federation, uh, which was this big global body of um, women dominated by women from the so-called second and third worlds, uh, organizing for peace and gender justice. She was an opponent of military rule, and she had this lovely kind of anti-colonial history where she was organizing women into holding picnics. And the picnics were her kind of deliberately low-key name for protest meetings of Nigerian working-class women who were refusing to pay taxes to British occupiers. So she was a great picnicker. And Funmilaya Ransomkuti's legacy in Nigeria has been, I think, maintaining a very strong awareness of the needs of working class and rural women in feminist organizing. This is one of the things that you get by looking at the global south um, uh, as opposed to the global north. And while some African commentators have been skeptical that feminism could ever be distinguished from these kind of Western or imperial dominated origins, Ransom Kuti was very clear that women disproportionately bore the painful costs of colonial occupation. So she was very clear about what it was to organize uh, around uh, women's liberation. She, she was very clear that the case for women's liberation was threaded into what uh, we can term as, quote, the liberation of the oppressed and poor majority of the people in Nigeria, end quote. And, and that quote is actually taken from the mission statement of a, an organization called Women in Nigeria, or WIN, which was established in 1983 to highlight the negative effects of the oil economy, of inflation, and of externally imposed structural adjustment policies, particularly on Nigerian women. And what's so interesting about women in Nigeria is they insisted on this very non-doctrinaire approach that included men as members and also said that men could be the beneficiaries of their actions. I think that Wynne's willingness to accept and integrate men into feminist activism remains unusual, even though I think there are some, some strong precedents for it. And it was underpinned by the idea that the sexes had to share the burden of transforming gender relations and that women in Nigeria were so encumbered by their domestic labor and their economic marginalization that they really had very limited time and resources to put into that struggle. So Wynne not only welcomed men's contributions to their work, but also celebrated and in fact demanded men's involvement. Men represented practically a source of energy and resources, but Wynne also argued that this would be a means of fundamentally reorienting men's consciousness. And men in turn were drawn to win because it was involved in um, social justice struggles that really spanned the sexes. And win hoped that men would gain through their, their action a, a deeper commitment to feminist goals. So I think the inclusion of men was a stance that responded to some very specific um, challenges around this specific time and place. And it was a, um, a move that was trying to actively resist the growing religious fundamentalism that was characterizing both Islamic and Christian Nigeria in the 80s and 90s, and, and which we, we still see today. Faith leaders uh, had begun to seek single-sex forms of worship and association. And Wynne, as a secular body, wanted to provide an alternative model of cooperation between the sexes and mixed-sex spaces. So this was a very active pushback against churches and mosques that were starting to insist on, on separation. Wynne's openness to all, and they didn't have any criteria for their, for their membership, created some tensions, it has to be said, um, over what their priorities should be. But that really spurred their internal efforts to build coalitions across divides. So Wynne gives us an answer to this perennial question of who could be a feminist by experimenting with an entirely open door policy. Thanks very much. And thanks so much for making us think so much more broadly about history and the place of history. I'm amazed now that, we, that you're the first historian we've had on. We'll have to have loads more. So if you're a historian, you happen to be listening, <laughs> please get in touch with us because uh, I've really found it's, it's um, 
you know, help me to place Thanks, many of the Andy. issues we're talking about, you know, today in that context mm. so thank you absolutely yeah well thanks to you for no. your questions it was really fascinating no. well it was our pleasure and i can highly recommend people check out lucy's book and all of your work because it's, it's fantastic and very inspiring as well as educational so, so yeah thank you very much for giving up your time to speak to us it's very much appreciated thank you <laughs> well Stephen, there, there's so much to pick up on uh, as a result of that conversation with lucy what what would you highlight uh, <laughs> the important points for you well, as you said, it's so hard to pick out just one or even a couple of things because it was such an enthralling conversation. But one thing which comes to mind, actually, which we didn't even really get a chance to cover with Lucy, but I suppose it's, it's, it is the value that that historical perspective gives you. Because um, one thing I was thinking about and um, which she talks about in her book um, is how actually if we look if we look back at how movements have changed over time or how they've differed in different contexts, maybe it can help us to get past some of these like... Um, seemingly uh, you know impregnable obstacles which movements sometimes have and you know we can see at the moment there's lots of divisions um within feminism for example and these kind of irresolvable debates and kind of conflicts and um, i thought lucy's book was really helpful in trying to think through some of that stuff really so i there's actually a quote in the conclusion which i just wanted to read out if that's okay because i thought that yeah was, go for it i thought she puts it thank you yeah she puts it really well um so she says a recognition that feminists have not agreed on a single program in the past can help reduce the toxicity of today's di disputes. It is normal and productive for any social movement to have many goals and strategies and to mean different things to different people. So I just thought, you know, that does sum it up quite well, really, doesn't it? it doesn't have, feminism doesn't have to be the same thing to everyone. It's okay for it to be different things to different people. And obviously that has a lot of relevance um, to men's uh, connections with it as well. Um, yeah, what did you make of the of the conversation? Uh, well, it, it really made me think in many different uh, directions, but uh, I was fascinated about uh, the, the place of history too, really. In particular, I think her focus on emotion, on subjectivity, and, you know, how that sort of focus can complement, you know, a more sort of straightforwardly sociological approach or, or mm. sociocultural approach which might focus more on say structures mm. in society and uh, you know it seems very very useful to to focus on in that way and mm. you know the focus on intimacy in in men's lives and women's lives and how you might go about researching that all of that is really rather mm. fascinating it made me think of the conversation we had with Martin Robb, the first episode of this podcast, where he was talking about fatherhood and, you know, he was raising the um, relevance of psychology, I think psych psychoanalytical perspectives as well. You know, so uh, I suppose the combination of different uh, methodologies, different uh, academic disciplines, I think was something that, that she highlighted and, and I find uh, uh, very useful yeah yeah and i suppose the different levels at which we can and should engage with with feminism right that it is a it's a political thing it's just it's a way of analyzing and understanding society but it is also incredibly personal and it's a you know there's an emotional process of, of working through it and applying it to your own life which is an ongoing challenge for, for men in particular of course uh, well for everybody um yeah and another thing i was thinking about was was how um the, you know looking at things globally or it helps as well and and i was thinking back to the episode we did um, in Seville, in Spain, you know, which we recorded on a on a demonstration of, of men against violence against women. And as we discussed at the time, that isn't really something we see in the UK anymore. So it's interesting to think about how kind of uh, men's engagement with feminism has changed over time, at least here in the UK, and, and how that varies in different countries, and um, and how that might continue to vary in the future, and, um, and how yeah, perhaps we might see more, or do we need to see more of that kind of outright, you know, political activism from men, as well as perhaps some of the more professionalized work we see in terms of trying to engage and educate men and boys about gender equality issues? Yeah, and um, the other feeling I had, actually, uh, in terms of what she was saying about the men's movement from the sort of 70s, 80s, was, in a sense, I felt like she was talking to me, really, and my, my uh, <laughs> friends and acquaintances, because we were all mm -hmm. struggling with these kinds of issues at the time. You know, many of us were in men's groups of different types. I, I was, uh, for a time, in a, a more sort of therapeutic group, um, mm. uh, which, you know, wasn't very easy. And I think, in a sense, did become a bit of a, a blind alley. And, uh, you know, mm. I, I think what she said about the positive focus on involved fatherhood and men being involved in working with young 
children, you know, that sort of area. Those were some mm-hmm. of the gains that that I remember coming out um, around then. But uh, uh, some of that confusion about <laughs> where are we all going? Are we going off to be wild men or do therapeutic <laughs> work or, or hanging on to the sort of anti-sexist consciousness raising strand? The, these were all very difficult, really. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it was time wasted, but uh, but I think it has had different effects, as, as she highlighted, particularly in relation to fatherhood, actually, you know, and the, yeah. the rise of sort of, you know, the father's rights movement, so, you know. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that's all we've got time for today, so thank you so much everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another episode soon, uh, and in the meantime, do email us at nowmen at gmail.com if you have any questions for future episodes. Please also do subscribe if you haven't already, and share the podcast with your friends. Um, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>